Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or like our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. On this episode of the show, we're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Ruth McManus, who is the Associate Professor in Geography at Dublin City University School of History and Geography. Ruth, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, today we're going to be dealing with a very interesting subject and one that is very relevant at the moment, and that's housing in Dublin. Now, it's always really been an issue, hasn't it, going back a century or more? Yes, indeed. Every time I, I see headlines saying the housing crisis, Dublin's housing crisis, I think, oh, here we go again. Because if you go right back, if you read newspapers going right back into the 19th century, you'll see the same kind of headlines all the time. Our, our Dublin in, in particular always seems to have had a housing crisis. The nature of the crisis changes over time, of course, but there's always been issues there with housing in Dublin. Well, one of the main issues, I think, is the fact that the private sector wasn't able to provide the amount or the quality of housing needed for the amount of people in Dublin. And what role would local government and national government provide in terms of housing? How did this manifest itself at the start of the 20th century? Well, I think we need to go back even a little bit further, back into the 19th century. And if we if we turn the clock back, uh, we see a very different attitude to where the state and local government indeed should be involved. And um, I suppose what was going on back then was this, this gradual acceptance that really the state did need to intervene. There had been a sort of the Victorian idea was one of laissez-faire, let the market decide, let, you know, let the market provide whatever needs to be provided. And over time, it was gradually ex accepted that, well, actually, that's a that's a bad system and it leaves people in a lot of difficulty. And that happened uh, with all sorts of things, including housing, but also public health and other issues. Remember, it wasn't until 1908 that the idea of giving people an old age pension finally came to fruition. So if we go back into the 19th century, we see an attitude that the government really shouldn't be involved. And when the government starts to get involved in, in these various issues, it's really um, a case of trying to stop cities from killing people, I think was a big issue in the 19th century because they were such unhealthy places. And gradually over time, you know, to stop things from getting worse, it wasn't actually to improve things or make life better. So it was a very, very different kind of an attitude to what should be done, how the state should be involved in housing. And of course, then if we turn to cities across the 19th century in Britain and in Ireland, we see uh, rapid growth. In the British cities, of course, the big um, cities like Manchester and Birmingham, these big industrialising cities, they're growing very, very rapidly. Uh, the population is increasing at dramatic rate and there's huge amount of industry. There's lots and lots of factories pumping out fumes and pollution and smoke and so on. In Ireland, Dublin was also growing but it, it was a sort of a different situation because we didn't have that level of industrialization. So we didn't have lots of industrial jobs for people. What was happening in, in Britain was that there were people crowding into the cities. The employers were providing some housing for them, but of course the housing wasn't very good quality and so on. In Dublin, we see people flocking to the city, mostly not because there were necessarily jobs there, but because this was where all of our charities were located, when people were impoverished, they actually came to Dublin. So we had a big problem with paupers coming to the city. So we didn't have, we had some big name employers, the ones that everybody knows, like Jacobs and Guinnesses. But really, we didn't have a huge amount of industrial employment. And over the course of the 19th century, what we see is the employment base getting more and more problematic. So what we have is more and more and more people uh, falling into that unskilled labourer category. And once you have a lot of unskilled labourers, the problem is they've got irregular employment, they're not very sure where the next wage packet is coming from, and they have a very a low ability to pay rent. So there's not a lot of incentive for people to be building housing. The private market isn't going to be building housing for these people because they can't pay very much money for housing. 
So that's the one side of the coin. It's the it's the issue around the provision of, of housing by private developers. That's just not happening in, in Dublin. Whereas in Belfast, uh, where we do have a much more industrial development going on in the course of the 19th century, there is housing being provided. So we get those typical two up, two down type red brick terraced houses. You see them all over Belfast. They're just like the kind of the Coronation Street type of house. You don't get that or to a very, very limited extent in Dublin. So that's one part of the equation. What you say about Belfast is very interesting. And I've had someone say that to me that within living memory, like in the 60s, uh, the father of a friend of mine moved from Belfast to Dublin. And he was shocked by even then what he thought of as like the squalor and tenements in Dublin compared to what he thought of as relatively well-constructed housing and kind of, you know, respectable working class life in Belfast. Yeah, I think we never really got that. If you go to Belfast or to loads of cities that developed in the 19th century in England, like I I have occasion to go to the Centre for Urban History in Leicester, say you've got loads and loads and loads of that 19th century housing. And what was happening in the 19th century was where the government started to intervene. They started to provide regulations around new housing. So they they started to introduce uh, model bylaws which were then copied around the different local authorities. So the idea was that roads would be of a certain width. There had to be a certain amount of space between houses. The rooms had to be of a certain size. You had to have a window in every habitable room, all of that kind of thing, which led to a certain amount of standardization in housing, but it also did improve the quality of housing. So you have all of these terraces of housing around British cities and indeed in the case of Belfast. But that was possible because you had the private sector building lots of houses because there were jobs available in the factories that enable people to have a regular income to pay the rent on these houses. In Dublin, you didn't get that. You have a very divided city in terms of the um, incomes, I suppose. And what we see happening in Dublin is we don't have as much of that kind of job security. We don't have an incentive for private sector to, to, to become involved in housing in the same way. So they're not building new housing. So the, the new housing, that lovely 19th century working class housing that you know is, is quite attractive to people today, we don't get that to any great degree in Dublin. Instead, what the market does do is it uh, subdivides older housing and it repurposes the houses that had been the grand houses of the elite in the 18th century and now they're being subdivided and turned into these tenement houses which of course are not being well maintained are not designed in the first place for large you know numbers of people to live in them you know for multiple family use they're just not really up to it they're gradually deteriorating over time so that they're the tenements, the famous tenements that are so much a feature of Dublin life right down until really that the last of them are only being demolished in the 1980s there along Summer Hill. So they have a very, very long lifespan. And as well as those large family houses that have been subdivided, you also have what's even worse are people living in the cellars of those houses. It's absolutely you know, no, no light uh, they're damp that you can imagine how awful they were and then in the back lanes and alleyways and where there had been stabling for horses in the mews they're no longer required because the people who are living in the front and the main house aren't in the, in the business of, of keeping horses anymore because they're you know just ordinary joe soaps what's happening is in those back lanes you're getting shacks and hovels it's really like sort of shanty town in, in, in the back lanes, which is even worse. There's some amazing photographs that some of the listeners may have seen associated with the 1913 housing inquiry, where John Cook, who was involved with the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, he went around and he got into these back lanes and, he, um, and into tenements and he photographed. So we have this amazing evidence of what it was actually life, like and how impoverished the life was for people living in those uh, tenements, slums. Well, Ruth, you just mentioned there the 1913 lockout and the housing inquiry and how this really brought into focus the quality of housing that citizens in Dublin had to live in. 
What pressure did it put on local authorities in Dublin to provide better housing? I suppose what you see is over time, there's an awareness that something needs to be done about housing in Dublin. People are dying more than they should be because of conditions in the tenement houses. You have, you know, high rates of TB, for example, because it spreads very easily in that kind of uh, overcrowded environment. And really, going back the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, there's various calls and various moments where we think, aha, now now something is going to be done. There was a housing inquiry, for example, in in 1885, I think it was. But what we see happening in um, 1913 is very, very dramatic. Up till now, there's been calls for housing. People say, oh, yeah, something should be done. And eventually the corporation actually does start to provide some housing from the 1880s on. Obviously not very much, but it's, it's, it's starting. It's a very, very low base. What happens in 1913 is that we have a, a suddenly a political impetus in a different way than previously. So what we have is a situation where at the end of August, uh, the lockout begins. We have police baton charge on O'Connell Street, Sackville Street. So the city is really uh, like a tinderbox, I guess. Things are very, very tense. And then at the start of September, we have two houses on Church Street which collapse. Uh, so two tenement houses collapse. Seven people are killed in that collapse, including one young lad. A very sad story. He had been let go on account of the lockout and he he went back into the house to rescue his, his siblings and was killed, crushed to death. So you see in the newspapers of the time, side by side, the discussion of the lockout, this big who had this big standoff between the employers and the unions and, well, the ITGWU in particular. And at the same time, on the same page next to that, the whole story of what happened in Church Street, who's to blame, why did this house collapse? It's not the first time that the houses have collapsed. This is happening all the time. They're deteriorating. They're getting worse over time. They're not being maintained. But because it happens at this particularly um, significant moment politically, there are very, very strong calls for something to be done. And even the Irish Times, the Irish Times was very much on the side of the employers and a very you know unionist paper, very conservative in its outlook. Even in the Irish Times, they were saying, well, you know, the lockout wouldn't be happening. We wouldn't have this labour unrest if people had decent housing. You actually see the same thing happening after the 1916 rising people saying, oh, well, this mightn't even have happened if people had decent housing. So now there's a sort of a political element and further calls for something to be done. So once the collapse happens and there are various calls that uh, there should be a, a proper inquiry into housing conditions, there is an inquiry set up, set up pretty quickly and it reports within a few months. It's, it's far, far quicker than the modern day equivalents. And what that does is it gathers all sorts of evidence from everybody who's interested in the housing question in Dublin. It also, by the way, there's a big appendix which looks at other parts of the country and sees what's happening there. And it gathers evidence comparing the situation in Dublin to other major cities within the UK, of which we're still a part, of course, at the time. And basically what they find is that the situation in Dublin is pretty much worse than anywhere else. It was compared at the time to Calcutta. The death rates are higher. One of the big issues in Dublin, uh, more so than anywhere else, was the fact that we had an awful lot of one-roomed tenements. So whole families crammed into a single room. And that level of overcrowding was very, very problematic in terms of public health. So there's huge evidence there that something needs to be done. And even Augustine Burrell, who's the chief secretary for Ireland, is, is saying, well, this report shouldn't just be left on a pigeonhole somewhere. This needs to be acted upon. It was very clear also from the evidence that the corporation had been trying to do something, but it had achieved relatively little. It was really a drop in the ocean what they had managed to achieve in the 30 years that they had been building housing. I think they had provided for about 1,300 units, but they needed 10 times that uh, many units immediately in order to address the housing problem. The city, of course, 
had severe financial difficulties. They weren't able to provide housing unless the residents, uh, the tenants of that housing were paying, you know, paying enough back into the city coffers. They couldn't afford to let the housing at a loss, uh, which was what tended to happen in, the, in these situations because the people they were trying to provide for you know, had very little income. So they were in a very difficult uh, situation. The corporation had a very low rate base. One of the things that we haven't talked about that was happening also in the 19th century and also not just in Dublin, but elsewhere, was the fact that the middle classes were moving out. So they were suburbanizing. If you were reasonably well to do in, in Dublin, you would be considering moving out to Balls Bridge or to Rath Mines or later on maybe to Drumcondra or to Clontarf. And all of these locations were outside of the city limits. The city boundaries were pretty much the canals and uh, the two canals sort of. So you have this very, very small central area. And this is where the corporation is getting its money from. So it's, it's, it's the rate payers within those boundaries. When you have the better off people moving out, uh, they're no longer paying those local taxes to the city proper. And it leaves the corporation uh, with a big financial headache. So they're trying to provide not just housing, but they're also paying for all sorts of other services within the city with very little money. So when there's huge calls for something to be done in 1913 around housing, the corporation is saying, well, hmm, yeah, yeah, we agree with you. Yeah, of course. But where's the money going to come from? The report of the inquiry comes out saying, well, this is something that has to be done at the level of the state. So the state is going to have to intervene. The state is going to have to provide literally millions and millions back then at a time when millions would be like billions today. Huge, vast sums of money would be required to address the problem. Um, of course, the corporation also got into difficulty because at the inquiry, it came out that not all of the corporation uh, members were exactly squeaky clean. And what we find is that a number of councillors and aldermen were actually tenement owners. So that reflected very badly. And the medical officer of health, Charles Cameron, who had done so much for the city over a 50 year period, he was also heavily criticised for supposedly um, passing or it's a complicated story, but basically he was accused of being corrupt. The corporation came out of it very badly. Corporation hit back and said, well, what could we do with what was the means at our disposal? The state will have to intervene. And so this point, 1913 lockout, which is continuing on into 1914, our, our report is published early 1914. Hooray, it looks like something might be done. There's also at that time that the uh, report comes out, they're recommending that the new housing, when it's built, should be in suburban areas, that it's a good idea to bring people out of these overcrowded central areas, bring them out to where there's more light, more air, it's healthier surroundings. So to suburbanise the population of Dublin, that's a very, very important recommendation. And this is all tied in with the movement at the time the Garden City movement, which is, you know, big, great interest in a new way, a, an apparently new way of living, a better way of living in cities. So this is all very wonderful. And uh, we think, OK, great. We've got a particular moment that seems to be a very strong impotence. There's, there's the whole political agenda behind this. Maybe now is the time that something is going to be done for housing in Dublin. Uh, but of course, Looking back, we know that it's all going to go perfect shape because, of course, with the outbreak of war at the end of the summer of 1914, all of the resources are now going to be diverted into the war effort and there's not going to be any money for Dublin, sadly. On that, the idea that corruption plays a factor in the housing crisis of that time, it kind of feeds into a political narrative, doesn't it, of labour activists and to extent separatist activists in the early Sinn Féin that the existing corporation is corrupt and they're these old Rebendite jobbers and, you know, they're only in it for themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, it played nicely into the hands of the unionists who said, well, look, the corporation, you know, they can't they can't be trusted. You know, look, 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 because uh, there was a majority nationalist corporation for quite some time at this stage. And they're saying, well, look, look at the mess they've made of this. They can't be trusted. How could we trust you know, for this, the whole home rule argument, oh, they couldn't be trusted to look after themselves. Look at the, what a mess they've made out of this. 
which of course I think is is part of the reason why housing becomes a, a big issue when we finally do gain independence and why why that the new government immediately announces money for housing. Um, I think they were very conscious of of you know perception. They needed to be seen to be doing something. One thing that's very prominent in the newspapers of the period, not only in Dublin, is these town tenant leagues. So it appears that you know housing was a big issue across Ireland. It was almost like the land issue in terms of social questions. Yeah, and it's very interesting. If if you look at again, I'm I'm not an expert on this part of it, but if you do look at the at the whole story, and um, what you see happening, and Fred Allen wrote about this a long time ago, is that the housing question in rural Ireland is addressed much earlier than the urban question. And of course, you can say, well, that's down to what's going on with the Land League and so on, um, that there's a much greater political push for rural Ireland. And it's, you know, it's politically expedient to do something about about housing. And in fact, in terms of all of Europe, Ireland's rural labourers got well housed far earlier than than their counterparts across the rest of Europe. And the other argument is, is that, well, it could be said at the time, the argument could be made in Parliament in, in Westminster that, well, the situation for Irish rural labourers was very different to the circumstances in the rest of the United Kingdom. Whereas in Dublin, although Dublin was probably one of the worst, it wasn't the only city that was experiencing horrible conditions with slums uh, and so on. And if the governments decided to give money for amelioration of the situation in Dublin, they'd open the floodgates and all of the other cities right across Britain and Ireland would be looking for funding for housing. But you're right, yes, I've, I've done some more work recently looking at uh, slums and, and housing problems across the country. So although Dublin was noted and kind of celebrated as, you know, dear dirty Dublin and all the problems, in fact, if you look at even at small town Ireland, you see horrible, horrible conditions in the towns, yeah. Now, Ruth, you mentioned the Garden City movement. How did this influence thinking once we have the birth of the Free State? Ah, yes, well, <laughs> yeah, once you get me started on the Garden City, you'll, you'll have to haul, rein me in, I'm afraid. So the Garden City movement is, is an interesting story in itself. Back in 1898, we have a chap called Ebenezer Howard, who's you know, pretty much a nobody. He's a he's a stenographer. He's you know he's he's just a an ordinary Joe Joe Soap. But he's this maybe crazy idea, and he publishes a book um, which is called Tomorrow: A Peaceful Path to Real Reform, and in it he proposes a new way of living in uh, what he calls garden cities, and the idea is that eventually decant the entire population out of the current cities into these new well planned and organised cities. The amazing thing about it really is that the idea took off. So his book is published in 1898. It's republished then a couple of years later with a new title, Garden Cities of Tomorrow. So the Garden City movement takes off very quickly. We have a company established to set up the first Garden City and the foundations are laid in 1903. So already there's an exemplar out there of this new way of life. So one of the things that happens is that they have Raymond Unwin and Barry Parker brought in to design what this new garden city should be like. And what they suggest is building low density housing, 10 or 12 houses to the acre um, so that everybody has plenty of space, uh, lots of light and air, their own gardens and so on that the houses should be oriented so that they maximise natural light. All sorts of very, very nice things, very attractive and very different to the kind of cities that were being built. Those hygienic 19th century bylaw uh, streets that we talked about a little bit earlier, where you have lots and lots of straight streets, but they're, you know, they're all identical. So Unwin and Parker were, were kind of giving much of more of a sort of a villagey feel and a lower density as well. You know, the average density maybe in those um, Coronation Street type housing areas would be maybe 40 or 50 to the acre. Now we're talking 10 or 12 to the acre. So much more spacious surroundings. So this Garden City movement was really taking hold. And there were a lot of big industrialists in, in the UK who actually put money into it, including people like the Cadbury's and um, Harmonsworth, the guy who ran the Daily Mail. 
So there was quite a lot of interest in it. And that interest also was seen on this side of the water. There were a number of exhibitions where people came over, Patrick Geddes in particular, who was also a witness at the 1913 inquiry. He had come to Dublin on a number of occasions and uh, promoted uh, new ideas about this garden city type approach. So this was all in the ether, I suppose, from throughout the 1910s. And Michael Bannon has written about this. And unfortunately, we saw that there was a bit of a hiatus with war conditions and so on. And very little construction took place in Ireland in general from 1914 right through until, I suppose, the, the mid-1920s, really, because uh, costs had gone up, the stability or lack of stability in the country meant that very few people were willing to take a punt on building. So then when we get the free state up and running, when the corporation is finally in a position to really start building again after, well, they had been building bits and pieces, but they hadn't had a really good chance to, to get their teeth into something, I guess. When we're in the situation where we can build something, all of these influences have come to play. So the Garden City movement has really influenced overall British planning. The first uh, planning act in the UK was as early as 1909. Raymond Unwin, that man that I mentioned, who was involved in designing the very first Garden City, he was involved in Britain in a committee that was established to decide how housing should be built after the war. Uh, so this was called the, the Tudor Walters Report. And that report had all of those ideas around low density, uh, lots of space, light and air that we've already mentioned. So from being this one crazy guy in 1898, my friend Ebenezer Howard kind of thinking of this crazy idea that we should all live in a very different way. By 1918, we've got the Tudor Walters report where these ideas, as filtered through Unwin and Parker's work, are becoming the manual. Then there's a housing manual in 1919 in Britain that's saying this is how we should be building houses. This is the way housing schemes should be laid out. And here in Ireland, that idea very much took hold. So when we look at what the corporation is doing in the uh, mid 1920s, they're very much influenced by this Garden City movement. Of course, Raymond Unwin actually did come to Dublin and was involved in advising on the most famous scheme of the lot in Merino. So what we see at Merino is sort of the ultimate in this garden city movement, except that the garden city idea was that we should have separate towns or separate cities where everybody should be uh, working and living within those communities that they wouldn't need to go outside for anything. Whereas what we see being developed in Merino is actually a suburb of Dublin. Uh, but nevertheless, a lot of those ideas around design come right through from that Garden City lineage, if you like. Rona McCord has written a very good article for my website, The Irish Story, on this. And she made a couple of points about Merino, but one was that it was very well built and well constructed, but that it was very much influenced by this idea of the respectable working class would be settled there. Yeah, well, that is one of the big issues that face the corporation right through from the very beginning. If we look at the story of what the corporation built, going right back to the very first schemes at Ben Burb Street, what's uh, was Barrick Street, Ben Burb Street, and at Bow Lane West, what they built was very, very cheap and very low quality. And what happened was that the people who went in there were also, it was the poorest of the poor, which is what they were trying to cater for. And when they provided that housing there uh, that, at a price that people could afford, that was all well and good. But Immediately, we had people coming in and saying, oh, look at the death rate in those new buildings on Ben Burb Street. The death rate there is higher than the city average. You're just creating new slums. So the corporation always had this difficulty. If they built housing to cater for the people who, who were most in need, they were being accused of creating slums because the people in greatest need could not afford to pay for better quality housing and the corporation was financially tied there wasn't a principle of subsidy they weren't in a position financially or indeed legally to be building housing if it was going to become a huge burden on the ratepayers. 
So right through from that early stage, there was this toing and froing within the corporation all the time about what they should build, about where they should build and for whom they should build. And the way that the corporation kind of faced this, or I suppose, if you like, came to terms with what they did, was that they built better quality housing, but then it was only the better off people that could afford it. But if those people were getting into that housing, they would be vacating slightly better slums and there would be what they called a filtering up effect. In other words, the poorest people would be filtering up into slightly better housing. So everybody would benefit from the slightly better conditions. It wasn't just an argument that was being made in, in Dublin or in Ireland. This, you see the exact same discussions going on in British cities as well. So, yeah, so when we come to Merino, the huge question with Merino is that the corporation wanted to build a model. If we go back to what I was saying about the Tudor Walters report and the housing manual in Britain, what they were doing was um, they were trying to set a new standard that everybody would adhere to, that the local authorities, but also private developers would have to build to this higher standard. So if we look at uh, what goes on in Ireland, we have a similar concept. There's an early version of a housing manual here as well. It's not quite as sophisticated as the British one, but corporation comes in and they say, and this is in uh, various reports, you, you can read about it. They're discussing making Merino a model not just a model of local authority housing, but if they say, if we're building to this standard, well then private builders will have to at least build to the same standard as this, or people who are going into these private houses won't be happy. So the aim from the very outset at Merino was that this would be a model scheme. And in fact, the corporation was in difficulty uh, in financing it. So one of the outcomes is that they decide if we build better quality housing, we can't afford to rent this housing out because it's going to be constant drain on our resources because it's loss making. So they decided to make this a tenant purchase scheme. So this was a very radical idea that uh, the people who moved into the house in Merino, the new tenants would actually over a period of years be paying a higher rent, so-called purchase rent, but at the end of the, the, the period, they would actually own those houses. So as Rona has said, that meant that you have a slightly better, better class, if you like, of tenant. Well, you have people who can afford to pay that rent. Um, now, the thing is, you can be critical of the corporation. You can kind of say, well, were they not fulfilling their, their remit? But at the same time, uh, there was huge demand for these houses. You see this... Um, in Merino, you see it later on in, in, in Drumcondra and Dunicarni, that these schemes were hugely oversubscribed. So there was clearly a huge need, even for people with a bit more money, there was a huge need for decent housing uh, for them. In fact, there was a huge shortage of housing for all classes in the 1920s. So that's one side of the whole finance story in Merino, which leads to it being aimed at a slightly different tenant. The other thing that happens at Merino is that because they want this to be a model scheme and they really are very aspirational, they can't actually do it within the certain level of subsidy that's available to them under government grants. So they decide at Merino for the first time that what they're going to do is to reserve certain areas at the edges of the scheme. So if you know Merino, along what they call the frontages, so the main roads, the Malahide Road, along the new 100-foot road, what, what's later named Griffith Avenue, later then along Phillipsburg Avenue as well. And those plots are not actually going to be built upon by the corporation. They're going to lease those plots to private builders and require them to build to a certain uh, specification. So this is the start of the reserved areas principle, which is actually applied for a very long number of years in corporation schemes and has a number of impacts, one of which is actually to create a bit more social mixing in the schemes because the people living in those better houses, if you like, the, the, the slightly higher class houses are of a slightly different social class as well. 
Well, Ruth, that's an interesting point because I was listening to a talk that you gave about Drumcondra, and one of the issues that you raised was about housing cooperatives and what role they played in the Drumcondra and moving on beyond their uh, Griffith Avenue, that sort of area, and beyond Merino. What role did the housing cooperatives play in this provision of Dublin housing? Yeah, well, it's 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 very interesting actually because. Um, Again, it goes right back to my friends in the Garden City movement, because one of the things we see that they introduced were what they call co-partnership or co-tenant societies and what come into Ireland and are known as public utility societies. And uh, quite a long time ago now, when I was doing my PhD, I came across these public utility societies mentioned somewhere and I went into my supervisor and said, what's a public utility society? And nobody had ever heard of them before. They'd kind of been forgotten about but yeah, basically, they were like a kind of a co-op. The very first example here in Dublin was at East Wall, where we have the wonderful uh, Reverend Hall, who's a Church of Ireland uh, minister down there, who saw the awful conditions and said, I've got to do something about it. And he started building housing using this mechanism of the Public Utility Society at a time when nobody was building. And it was a very ecumenical undertaking and... Um, was very celebrated in its day. So Hall had already started this in East Wall. And then when it came to Merino, what we see happening is the idea is, is applied again. So, for example, along the Malahide Road, we have an organisation which is really for civil servants. The Public Utility Society builds along the Malahide Road. There's a different society which has a sort of a different name, it's a guild of building workers, and they build some of the houses on Griffith Avenue. And uh, by the time we get to the Drumcondra scheme, which starts in sort of 1928, uh, the corporation is so delighted with the success of what they've done at Merino in terms of these reserved areas and using these public utility societies that they go to town on it in Drumcondra. If anybody knows the Drumcondra housing scheme that was built by the corporation, it runs from the park, uh, Griffith Park, up to Home Farm Avenue, uh, uh, home, sorry, Home Farm Road. It's kind of behind St. Patrick's College, um, sort of a triangle of streets there, Ferguson Road and others. And then from Home Farm Road up to Griffith Avenue, there's a whole uh, series of roads with names of islands uh, like Rathlin, Lambay and so on. And uh, what the corporation did was the bottom half of the scheme, sort of south of Home Farm Road, they built the house themselves. And then the north side of the road between Home Farm Road and Griffith Avenue, all of those streets with the island names, they're all leased to private developers. There's a couple of private developers like uh, Louis Kinlan built along there, but mostly it's public utility societies, these co-ops, and also then Soldiers and Sailors Land Trust, which is building housing for returning soldiers coming back from the First World War. Yeah, so the corporation was really keen on the idea of getting more people involved in building housing, and the state was as well. If you look at the 1924 and 1925 Housing Acts, the government is really keen to get private builders back building again, because as I mentioned, there was this long hiatus. But they gave special grants. So the grants available for, for private developers, but there were even better grants available to the local authorities and these public utility societies to build housing. The shortage, I suppose, you know, this remove is hard to believe, but there was a huge shortage of housing for all classes. So the government really wanted to kickstart the building industry again. And of course, construction jobs were also a plus as well. So providing more employment through building houses. So it was a win-win if you could get that up and running. We talked about the political context before the First World War, but after independence and after the Civil War period, housing didn't cease to become a political issue, did it? No, uh, no, certainly not. And of course, um, there's a lot of talk about the fact that Fianna Foyle came in in the 30s and, and solved the slums or aimed to solve the slums, you know, that the previous administration really was, was in the halfpenny place which is, in fact, well, I think it was good propaganda on the part of Fall that they've managed to get this uh, message out for all these years. But I'm here to tell you that, in fact, the 1931 Housing Act had already turned around to turn back towards slum clearance. 
and uh, to try and address the problem of the slums. Fianna Fáil then came in in 32 and uh, strengthened that uh, legislation and, and gave a bit more money for it. But it was already on the cards because the civil servants were very conscious by 1929. Uh, they did a study and they could see that across the country, yes, uh, there was housing being built all right, but uh, the problem of the slums uh, was persisting. So, so there were, well, not inquiries, but there were reports done in Dublin, but right across the country that showed, well, we need to kind of reorient the emphasis now. We've, we sort of solved that residual issue that, that there simply wasn't enough housing. And now we need to, to, to target our approach more towards the slum dwellers. So, so that's what happens then in the 30s, that you see much, much more targeted approach towards slum clearance, which, of course, has... Hmm. interesting long-term impacts on the city of Dublin. And could we just talk briefly about, you know, the rapid expansion of Dublin? This is one of the first big uh, housing estates like in Crumlin and the south side of that era. So if you look at Dublin in, say, 1926 census, what you see is two thirds of the population living within the canal area. And by the 1986 census, it's less than a tenth of the population. So what we have happening is of course the population has grown as well. What we have happening is a decanting of the population out of the centre. And this is what I was saying about the sort of interesting impacts or the unintended consequences of well-intentioned policies uh, from say the 30s. So in the 20s, we see this idea of the garden suburb, low density, low rise development in suburban areas. So Marino, Dunny Carney, the first Dunny Carney, Drumcondra, the early phases of Cabra and so on. But they don't really provide a huge amount of housing. When you get to Crumlin, you're talking a much bigger scale, so you know, sort of 6,000 houses. And what you're also getting when you come to Crumlin is um, a sort of a watering down of the garden city or garden suburb concepts. So when we get to the stage of trying to tackle the slum clearance issues in the 30s, the corporation says, OK, yeah, well, we'll do our best. What we're going to do is we're going to continue to build suburban housing. This is now going to be rental, not tenant purchase anymore. So we're going back to rental and we are also going to provide flats in the centre. So the poorest people, the people who can't afford to move out to the suburbs, who can't afford the higher rents in the suburbs, are going to be rehoused in new flat schemes. And these are the ones that there's been a lot of talk about recently that are designed by Herbert Sims and his teams. So what you have happening then is a kind of uh, social segregation going on. In the centre, you have the more impoverished people being sort of left behind in the city centre, while much, much more of the population is being encouraged to move out into these vast, well, vast by the standards of Dublin anyway, new housing estates like Crumlin, Drimna, uh, Kimmich and so on. And um, this remains the policy for a very long period of time. It was problematic and it was problematic even if we go back to the debate that was happening in the 1910s. Not everybody in the corporation was too keen on this idea of garden suburbs and moving people out of the city centre. There were a lot of people on the, and it was a constant debate, where should we build the housing? Because uh, there was an argument, no, people need to be near their places of employment, which were at that stage still all in the city centre. They want to be close to their, their family, their friends, their extended, their community. To Alderman Tom Kelly in particular, who was chairman of the housing committee for a long time, um, he has a very interesting story in his own right, but um, Kelly had grown up in tenements and, and he said, look, why are we sending people out? Why, why, why do we think it's a good idea to send people out of the city? And what's going to happen? I, I, every time I read that, I kind of think, jeepers, wasn't he dead right? What's going to happen to the city if if you take out the population, if you if you remove the population? So we had from the 20s, I suppose, onwards, Right through, we've really had a policy of low density, low rise suburban housing for all classes. And the flats that were built in the city centre were kind of considered almost to be like a consolation prize for people who couldn't couldn't move out, even though 
I think for people who live there, it was a very different story. And of course, a lot of people who move it out to the likes of Crumlin, you know, found it very difficult to settle and, and wanted to go back to town. And, and a lot, you know, there's loads of stories of people, even later, I suppose, people in the 50s who came out to places like Artane and Gulak, who, who used to go back into town, get the bus back into town every day, you know, get their messages there. You know, they, they, they found it very difficult to adjust to the suburban environment. You know what's interesting though the the um the psychological aspect of it. Like I remember reading Brendan Behan's mother's memoir, and she said, uh, "Oh, we were moved out to Crumlin at the foot of the Dublin Mountains." And I'm like, "What? An inner suburb?" Of Crumlin. <laughs> I know, I know, but you know, I mean, there's all these things. Oh, it was like Siberia. You know, it was beyond the end of the. You know, the tram stopped. You know, and then you were walking out in the in you know in the dark, uh, trying to find your house. There's great stories of this because when the houses were built, there was such a shortage of housing, and and, and as soon as the houses were finished, they were moving people into them, and you know they, they hadn't finished the estate. You know they're still building, and, and you know they didn't have the the signs up on the street corners, for example. You know, and all the houses looked the same. You know, this is one of the things I suppose that I was mentioning about they were cutting costs. So whereas in Marino, you have huge variety in 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 the different housing types and in the different uh, material building materials, it's very interesting from that point of view. Even though I still do get lost in it all the time, but when you go to Crumlin, like every, it, it all looks the same, and pe and people were were walking into other people's houses thinking that they were their houses. You know, they they got confused, and you know, and people found it very different. Around, I can't remember whose memoir. Somebody who who moved out to Cabra, and they're saying, "Well, you know, we had a front garden. We didn't know what to do with the front garden. We'd never had grass before. We had to go out with the scissors to cut the grass." <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's it's a big um, shift, and again, not unique to Dublin, but this idea of being pulled from a very close knit uh, community and settled in this alien environment you know there's, there's sort of analogies made with uh, the cowboys and indians and sort of being, uh, being out on this reservation and again this is something that we see happening in the 30s with crumlin we see people talking about it in the 50s in in, in Vinglas. you know it, it's sort of a recurring uh story and it's not helped i suppose for people moving out to these places that they were so raw they were so new and yeah, a lot of people do say, yeah, it was great. You know, we had we had proper, you know, we had running water, we had a loo, uh, all of those, you know, basics that we think of today. But um, it was difficult because the corporation was so obsessed with building housing that they had a kind of a housing first mentality. So they provide the housing, but there was nothing else there. So there were no other facilities. You know, you're kind of going into what had been fields up until a year ago. There's nowhere for the young people to go. There's there's no shops. There's there's minimal services. You've got the local farmers if they're a bit entrepreneurial will will come around and and sell some vegetables off the back of a cart. But you know it it's it's it it takes a long time then for the community to re really establish itself to put down roots and to you know have all all of its needs served. Well, the same thing happened again if you go back to the 1980s and you go to Tala. And, um, you know, when there was vast amounts of housing being built and, you know, the, the, the facilities, the shops and so on required really did, didn't arrive until much later. You used to see the same thing out in Ballymun as well, even where there were great plans to provide wonderful resources and services and shops and cinemas and uh, swimming pools and, you know, what they weren't promising, you know, uh, and yet they were ending up with very, very poorly resourced right at the edge of the city. And, you know, these little pop-up little little shops and then containers and so on. So that's a, a recurring theme, I guess. Sorry, Ruth, I mean, I remember just you're saying Tala. I remember that in the 80s and 90s when I was a kid. It was a very stark place, very bleak place because there was almost nothing there, you know, apart from houses. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's this sort of idea, you know, you're well-intentioned. And, and I think... You know, for the corporation, they were damned if they did and they, they were damned if they didn't, because if they were providing high quality housing, well resourced with all of the facilities, which, of course, is what everybody wanted, you know, then they'd, they'd get th that critique that we were talking about before that. Oh, yeah, well, you know, you're only providing for the handpicked few. 
Whereas if they tried to provide as much housing as possible, and then there was that time lag where other services were going to follow, well, then they were they were hugely criticised for you know abandoning people to these you know to the edges of the city and not providing for them. You know, it was it was. I I do have a lot of sympathy, I suppose, having read so many reports and 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 you know when you get the voice of the people who were working there and you know who were arguing we're, we're trying to make a difference i do have a lot of sympathy they didn't get it right all the time but they were trying and you know no matter what they did they were going to they were going to be criticized i guess well it's interesting going on youtube and looking at some of the documentaries and news reports that were made in the 1960s about homelessness and showing some of the conditions that families and large families were living in in the city centre. Does it feel like Dublin was constantly moving from one crisis to another? And will we ever reach the stage where we're on top of housing and we have the system in place to, to be prepared for any population increases? And we don't have, like as we've had for the last 10 or 15 years, this huge rental problem and lack of provision of affordable housing yeah um yeah when you look at you know history repeating itself uh, ad infinitum it appears you know it, it is kind of a little bit disheartening i guess yeah i suppose there's a few things first of all was that you know if we're talking about in terms of the way the corporation was trying to provide housing across the 20th century no matter what they did the problem was continuing to grow. It wasn't like they were they were just providing housing for the current need, you know, and 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 they they catch up with the problem. The problem was there was constant movement into the city as well. I've heard what was the analogy I heard before? You know that you're trying to you're trying to fill the bath, but there's there's, there's a hole in the you know that the, the plug isn't in, you know, or something like that. There's constantly more and more people needing uh, the service. So. so um, you know, that's that's one side of it, I guess. The other thing is that what people people's expectations shift, what was considered wonderful and really high quality, say, in the maybe in the 20s or the 30s, when we come to the modern era is no longer fulfilling modern day needs. So, so there's that kind of an issue about, you know, the sort of the shifting uh, requirements for you know certain standards and so on in housing, but we've never really got a grip on, I suppose, who should be providing housing. We talked at the beginning about the failure of the private sector in 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 Dublin, uh, going back to the nineteenth century and continuing thereafter, and uh, the slum landlords and the tenement owners, many of whom were ordinary Dubliners. My students always like to think that somehow they were, you know, from somewhere else. But no, they were our own people exploiting the, the situation. So we've never really kind of got comfortable with the idea of landlords and private landlords in Ireland, I think, in terms of housing. But the other thing that's happened in more recent times, really from the 80s onwards, has been so-called residualization uh, in terms of social housing. So if we go back, say, to the 60s, and if we look at the amount of housing that was provided by the corporation or by local authorities at that time, you know, up to 50 percent of, the, of the, the city's population was living in housing that had been provided by the by the city. It wasn't there was no stigma. You know, everybody did. And even, you know, a lot of people like I grew up in, in you know, in a, in a so-called private housing estate. But my I remember my dad going in to, to pay the mortgage to the corporation because they provided, you know, funding for other sorts of housing, either to be built or, in in the case of people like my dad, uh, to, to get cheaper mortgages. So the corporation, the local authority, and the state were involved in housing provision on all sorts of different levels. But in terms of the direct being directly a tenant of the corporation, that was no no big, not really a big deal if you go back to the sixties. Whereas if you come into the 80s, we had the situation here as in, well, we were basically copying uh, Thatcherite Britain, where there was this massive sell-off of local authority housing. People were being encouraged to uh, surrender their corporation houses. They were given a grant to do so and up sticks and move somewhere else. And that had hugely destabilizing impact on uh, local authority estates. 
So the people who were maybe in slightly better job or slightly, you know, better position were now being encouraged to leave and get out of their local authority housing. Great, that frees it up for somebody else who's in need. But what ends up happening is you get a situation where it's really people who have a lot of difficulties who are the ones who are now in local authority housing. You don't have that broader mix of population in your social housing. So increasingly, social housing, local authority housing, corporation housing, whatever you want to call it, is being associated with problem people, problem tenants, you know, people who have major issues. I don't need to rehearse them in great detail, but there's been a major, major shift in this concept that the state or the local authority should be providing housing at all. One of the arguments there ties in very much with what you're saying is that in this day and age, the local government and central government shouldn't be providing housing because it only creates ghettos. But your argument is that it's the opposite. It's that the stripping away of social housing created the problems. Yeah, absolutely. And I stand over that 100 percent. You know, we've, we've kind of almost come full circle in terms of our attitudes to providing housing. You know, it, it was a very long, slow process throughout the course of the 19th century to accept the idea that there should be intervention by the state and by local authorities. And there was a brief, relatively brief period in the 20th century where they provided really good housing, decent housing, you know, helped an awful lot of people. And although we've mentioned sort of difficulties at the start of some of those news, the state's new schemes, you know, by and large, people did settle and, and, and they did become, you know, very successful areas. It was the stripping away of that then that, you know, has created this real problem today. Yeah, so, so I definitely believe that there should be a principle there of provision and that it should not be simply for extremely impoverished people. And yes, you can have differential rents then, which was, of course, another big hot potato for a long number of years. But the idea, you know, depending on your ability to pay, um, you know, some people may, may be able to pay a bit more, but that, that they're living in good quality local authority housing so that you get this social mix. That's a big, big thing that's missing now. The other aspect is, as well as the social aspect, is the kind of idea of urban sprawl. Like the only reservation I'd have about building public housing is the city is already sprawling enough or, already. Yeah, well, well, yes. Going back to our discussion, you know, the idea of the garden suburb and, and, and the rest of it, low density, 12 to the acre, seemed wonderful. But in retrospect, what we ended up doing is right through the 20th century, building this low density housing. So if you can only fit 12 houses to an acre, it doesn't take a, a mathematical genius to, to figure out that we're going to be gobbling up huge amounts of space. And of course, the beautiful North County Dublin with all its lovely rich farmland is you know, rapidly disappearing under housing. Yeah, so, so we, we, we need to rethink the kind of housing we're building and um, you know this huge car dependence that is established when you have low density at, at a massive scale, as we've had in, in Dublin. That's really a big issue, you know, and as a geographer, that's something that, you know, would obviously be very uh, conscious of. So, yeah, no matter who builds the housing, it doesn't matter if it's uh, if it's the city or authorities or a private developer, you need to think about where it should be, how we can build communities and not be eating up the countryside. Um, so we do probably need, uh, well, we do definitely need um, higher density. That does not mean high rise. Ballymun was actually low density. <laughs> I always, uh, people are always amazed when I say that. It's, it was high rise, but it was actually low density because there's a lot of space around those very tall blocks. It ends up being quite a low density development. So it doesn't mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, huge towers, which I certainly wouldn't uh, be in favour of. But you can build um, five or six storey units. Uh, for example. So you're at a higher density, but in in order to make that work, we also have to think differently. You know, we've been very used to the idea of everybody having a garden front and rear, even if they do end up covering it in cobble lock paving for their four by four vehicles. But, you know, we, we've, we've been very wedded to that kind of idea and we've not been very good at providing public spaces you know I was amazed the first time I visited a friend in Germany and you know there were little playgrounds on practically every corner so there were places for kids even in these and of course the design of those apartments on, on the continent is very different to a lot of quite poorly designed units here 
where they're not providing for families. They're not really thinking in terms of storage and all the different needs of, of families. You know, they're just thinking about them. And I think we've got a big issue in this country about thinking about housing just purely in terms of making a profit out of these, you know, they're, they're, they're places where people live and we've, we've tended to forget that in recent times. Well, Ruth, thank you very much. That was a fascinating interview. Really appreciate you coming on the show. That was Dr. Ruth McManus from the School of History and Geography in Dublin City University. Now, if you'd like to listen to this interview or any of our previous episodes, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And we're on a lot of new platforms since the lockdown has started. We've had a lot more time on our hands. So we're now on Spotify and Stitcher and TuneIn. So you can follow the show there as well. And until next time, my name is Cahill Brennan. And on behalf of myself, my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening.